The car you drive every day should be fun. But it has to do the boring stuff too, like commute, be affordable, and haul your groceries. You can have both, and we'll help you find it. I'm Todd. I'm Paul. And this is the Everyday Driver Car Today. I encourage you to settle in. If you're driving, get comfortable. If you're riding the train to work or something like that, or you're listening at your desk, brace yourself. Yeah. This may be, and I'm saying this at the front, this may be our longest podcast ever. I, I hope not. I don't want to go <laughs> two hours. already. Holy but, cow. But the, well, the amount of content you and I want to cover tonight is shocking. Yeah. I, I stuck a lot in. I, I realize. But it was important. Yes. We need yes. people to know here, right? Well, I mean, we're, we're trying to be helpful. You've got three. That's right. Three different car debates, all of which are international. So that's very cool. You guys buried us in questions, which is awesome. And we also have a really cool story up front. But, but what, are the, what are the car debates we have coming up? All right. So we've got Matt in Kathmandu, Nepal, everyone. Nepal, his that wife. That is not a typo. <laughs> that is not a typo. No kidding. Nepal is writing to us, which is awesome. Thank you for listening, Matt. His wife works for UNICEF. So that's why he lives there. And then we've got Henrik in Sweden. He's writing in as well. And then finally, Bruce in Australia, who's, I think, got the funniest thing so far. I agree. <laughs> I agree. Just... His, his thing is may become our new kind of Paul Limiter drinking game add-on. His story oh, is so awesome. One. I can't wait to get there. It's, it, it practically is, is an extra. He has an, let's put it this way. He has an extra tax in Australia. We have to explain what that tax <laughs> is because it's going to be awesome. Exactly. But actually, first, I wanted to bring up an email that we just got in. And as you're saying, we get so many car debates, and there's so many good ones. And I, and I will fully admit, as you have, we will never get to all. Of them. It will never happen, but please keep writing in. We try to stay pretty current, and you know we're doing as many as we can. We're doing three tonight, for God's sake. Yeah. Uh, yeah but yeah, yeah. A, a listener named Jay just wrote in, and Jay was was thanking us for the podcast, telling us about the stuff he's seen of our videos, and thank you for that. He was sending in a little bit of a car debate. He has a heck of a garage. Hopefully, we'll get to that car debate. I don't want to cover that, but I want to cover one thing that happened to Jay that I read and felt like reading The Twilight Zone. <laughs> it was so strange. <laughs> He went to the Detroit Auto Show, and he was sitting in a car. He was sitting in an Audi S4, and there was a guy standing outside of the Audi S4 talking about how similar it felt to his car. And he said to this guy, well, what's your car? And that guy said, I drive a GTI. And they started talking cars. And come to find out, Jay, who listens to the podcast, is now – this is so strange – is now standing at the Detroit Auto Show talking to Corey. Corey was like three podcasts ago. He wrote in for his boss, who is tall – it was the yes. Tall Man podcast. Yes. Jay met Corey, and they realized they both listened to the podcast. That is one of my new favorite small world stories. That's amazing. Thanks for sharing that, Jay. Yeah, thanks for writing in. That is, that is pretty wild. I mean, I'm, I was trying to you know, force the issue by introducing podcast listeners if you're selling cars and we'll swap pink slips or something. But here <laughs> it just happened at a car show, yeah. at the Detroit show. Unbelievable. Wow, guys! Uh, yeah, thanks for letting us know. And uh, Corey, hope your uh, hope your boss has uh, decided on something. Maybe you guys are still yeah. driving things together. Are you getting a raise? Have you gotten that raise yet from your boss for <laughs> providing such good car advice? I mean, inquiring minds want to know. Corey doesn't understand why his company parking space is now at the far end of the lot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, thanks for that. Repaid that one. He's way out there now. Anyway, oh we should probably try to get to these car debates as we have three of them and questions. And I'm sorry, but Matt's in Nepal? Kathmandu, Nepal. And he's been That's listening awesome. for about a year. It. Thanks for writing, Matt. This is amazing. He is dreaming of living in their next country. Sounds like your wife's work is taking you all around the world. And yes. therefore, you're dealing with a choice of cars. But right now, you've got a Suzuki Wagon R 5-speed at 65 horsepower. Did I read that right? 65. I'm I amazed. I look this car up. I'll, I'll have to post a picture of this car. Because, yeah, you will. Yeah. We're, we're, not, uh, yeah we're, not, we're not driving a, a rocket ship by any means. <laughs> this is a car that, makes, that frankly makes the FRS look like a rocket ship. This is what kind of car we're talking about. Yeah. Speaking of non-rocket ships, he said it's rare anyone in the city goes over 35 miles an hour. That's slow. <laughs> but uh, that's the speed we we exceed that speed at a blizzard in Park City. But yeah, okay, that's right. Uh -huh. That's just like we slowed down for the blizzard kind of speed. But all right, um, actually, what what Matt is asking here is more about safety than anything else. It sounds like mm -hmm. the car is 
it's not here nor there. It's more just about his choices as he moves around the world through your life. You're, you're asking about safety in comparison to new and used. And that's something Todd and I mm -hmm. talk about constantly is buy used. But then when we go back, yeah. safety is on your mind, Matt, in terms of tech and, you know, going back before airbags and all that stuff. But, mm -hmm. you know, we, we could get into sem semantics. You know, Tesla, for example, doing their own crash testing and proclaiming it the safest car ever before <laughs> the, the governments yeah. around the world get a hold of it and actually do their own crash testing so they can certify it. That's one sure. thing. But yes, I, I've always maintained the safest cars are the one that avoid the accident in the first place. You've heard me say this before. True, True. yeah. Until I'm blue in the face, whether it's acceleration, meaning power or braking power, but then when we get into safety, such as you're saying your crumple zones, airbags, all the safe stuff, you can go back quite a ways because this has been going on for quite some time now. I mean, even late 80s cars had airbags. Doesn't mean they're as good as they are today or operate the true, same. True, true, yeah. You know, maybe mm -hmm. some might not work, but um, yeah, how far back can you go is the question when you're buying used, how far back? This is very yeah. car dependent and we, we're we very much getting into the debate about this because we, we could consult a lot of uh, government crash standards and textbooks. And, which, are, which are changing and updating all well, the time yeah. themselves. Yeah. You know, white papers, all that kind of stuff. But at some point you have to, okay, I want the car and, you know, is it going to meet a safety standard that I'm okay with? Mm. That's kind of what you have sure. to ask yourself. Sure, yeah. The yeah. less expensive cars, well, guess where the money gets taken out of? Every area, not just powertrain, interior, that kind of thing, but safety features too. So an mm -hmm. expensive car way back when probably had more safety features, but it's more expensive to maintain now. So all that is a balance. Yeah, definitely. You know, got to go back and forth. Yeah, that's good. Well, you're speaking to a lot of things that, that struck me on this question for Matt. I mean, Matt, the, the biggest thing is now you've, you've acknowledged there's not like a big week chart we can pull up and go, well, if you compare this, that's not really the case. But <laughs> don't at the buy same anything time, you from know, 2004. Don't, don't buy. Oh, yeah, exactly. No, that's not what we're <laughs> This saying. was a bad year for safety. No, but, but you know, I, I go back to the ridiculousness that is in parenting, buying a crib or a car seat. The one that was awesome like two years ago is now supposedly a death trap. <laughs> that has to do with changing right, safety right. standards and, and overprotective parents and all of the above. And also the fact that the uh, the company that sells those things wants you to think their old one's a death trap because you have to buy the new one. I mean, there's all kinds of things that are factors in there. That is the extreme version to say this is the thing about crash testing. It's always changing and morphing and actually becoming harder to pass. Mm -hmm. You know, the yeah. way they do the offset front crash test is much more aggressive now than it used to be. They only used to do, you know, straight on crash testing and then they added the offset. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff that has changed over the years. You can go look at the old, like find them sometimes, the old like 1950s crash test videos that are horrifying. Oh my gosh, or the ones yeah. <laughs> that they've done a few times where they take a car from the 50s and they offset crash test it with a car from now. And you realize you would have lived in the new one, even though the old one looked cooler before the crash. I mean, these are the kind of things that happen. But I would say to you as, as a rough rule of thumb, you're safe to jump back 10 years. Now, it's going to depend car to car. And as Paul's already saying, your high-end luxury cars get all the new latest safety tech first. So the more expensive stuff from five years ago is about like a base thing now. I mean, not across the board, don't quote me, but it's it's roughly comparable. When we were driving, for example, those early 911s or those early BMWs in our, in our big uh, comparison films, I don't know about you, Paul, but I was very struck by the fact that, please don't wreck this car. Not just because it was expensive, but just also, <laughs> this is just, it's the, the, the A-pillars, which we talk about a lot because they're these little tendril A-pillars, and it feels so light and delicate, and you can look around it, yes, but don't hit anything. You know, compared to, yeah. to modern stuff. And even, you know, I even thought about the fact that that 1990 300ZX I had. Oh, well. It had no it had no airbag. It had no front airbag. Oh, that's right. Really? 
as it moved through the progression of that car, they added a front airbag, and the steering wheel become, became that weird bulbous thing. And then oh, by 96, right. when they ended it, like the last year, like 95, 96, added a passenger airbag, which looks like, you know when you have Tupperware, you don't get it really quite sealed, it's not quite flush? That's what the passenger airbag looks like on almost all of those mid-90s cars. It's just that there's that, that box there that's about to blow <laughs> it's at any time. What's in here? Is that popcorn in here? Exactly. exactly. Don't reach. No, no, no. Don't grab that lip. Oh, <laughs> darn it. Oh, man. So... You think about stuff from that era that was just now getting front and uh, and passenger airbags. Forget, you know, side airbags and seat airbags. None of that existed yet. So you go back 20 years, and you're just at the beginning of airbags. You go back 10, that car has airbags. Braking has gotten better. I mean, that, that 300ZX, the braking capability of that car compared to my FRS, the FRS is far quicker. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, yeah. so brakes across the board have improved. Safety across the board has improved. So I'm going to stay with that. At 20 years, you're starting to go. This car isn't as safe. At 10 years, what's the car you're comparing? You know what I mean. So that's my rough version. I'd agree with that. Exceptions to every rule, of course. But you know, we can go down a, a long rabbit trail of manufacturing and politics. You know, politicians driving yeah, new sure. rules that are government safety mandates at that point. But those are Mm -hmm. driven by statistics, fatalities, deaths, all that kind of stuff. That's what those are driven by. And also, like I said, manufacturing techniques, whereas before it was a lot of welding. Now it's a lot of adhesives in manufacturing. So you bond two different kinds of materials. Well, that affects Mm -hmm. the way things crumple. But I'm I'm with Todd. You know, 10 years is a good rule of thumb, exceptions to every rule. And it depends on the kind of wreck. You can never – ever estimate what <laughs> sure. it's going to be like. Sure. Yeah, yeah. One car from the 50s might survive this kind of wreck with flying colors. <laughs> Just perfectly. At yeah. the perfect ang- – well, how do, you, how do you account for that? But the newer cars are being evaluated by software. So the virtual crash testing is trying to calculate a lot more of those scenarios and therefore the more mm-hmm. modern car with more modern kinds of features. And, of course, they're new. They work. You know, an old airbag might not fire, things like that. So – 10 years, 12 years, somewhere in there. You're even reminding me of the, specifically speaking to the brand I love, Lotus. Mm-hmm. The Elise died in this country because they got up to a regulation a, a year where the regulation now required dual stage airbags, and Lotus didn't have one, couldn't fit one, something along those lines for the Elise. So that meant they no longer sold it here, but yes, sell it elsewhere. There's regulation ending a car in the U.S. because mm-hmm. of regulations changing and because of safety getting better. And then the Evora went away for a year or so for the same reason and came back with a dual stage airbag. So mm-hmm. that's the other thing. Mm-hmm. Is, and, and the Elise, I'm going to go another step. The Elise, as I go Lotus geeky, was here on an exception anyway. I forget what crash test rule they were an exception to, but they had an exception because they were a low-volume automaker in the first place. Uh, So in spite of everything I'm saying, you have to check – if you really are concerned about this, you have to check the specific crash ratings for that specific car because there is a Wild West going on depending upon the car you're chasing. So there's <laughs> right. some rough rules. Hopefully some of that helps. It was like the the rules changed while you were playing the game. The car is the mm-hmm. same. It didn't get less safe. The rules changed. So they had to stop selling yeah. that car because yeah. of the rules, which was based on, you know, whatever, politics, statistics, government mandates, I mean, all that kind of stuff. That changed. You're, you know, you're playing your game and suddenly, what? The, I can't. Oh, man. Well, your car didn't change. It's, I mean, you know. the Elise is kind of a rolling aluminum crumple zone anyway. But, uh, yeah, anyway, you got to check these things out. <laughs> All right, jumping, uh, jumping right along here. we got to move on to Henrik in Sweden. He's 19, and he's in Sweden. Mm-hmm. And thanks for yep. writing, Henrik. This is very kind of you. You've got quite the dilemma with the cars you've named because you're really seriously considering a fun car. And isn't it, mm-hmm. isn't it even more of a dilemma when we're all searching for the fun car to extract the most driving enjoyment? Whereas <laughs> I think we're all a little bit more carefree if it's the family hauler or the, it's got to check some boxes, be safe, carry sure. a cargo. Yeah, yeah. I don't really yeah, yeah, care yeah. how it looks. It's got to start in the mornings, the end. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're all a little bit more forgiving, I suppose. But he's in this (laughs) – really, I think you're all twisted up in knots here, Henrik, because of all the fun cars you've named. As I said, he wants a rear-wheel drive car, although he's considering some all-wheel drive cars. Depending on what it is, he's suggesting Evo 6 or 8. But he's got between $10,000 and $20,000. I'm guessing that's U.S. dollars. 
I don't know the conversion rate right now. Of course, it fluctuates nearly daily, but uh, I, I'm assuming he's trying to speak our language here. So 10, 10 to 20 grand, and that's a huge swath, but it depends on is he going to save a little more to get the right car. Keep going. Well, he wants a lightweight car, rear-wheel drive or mm-hmm. four-wheel drive. Mm-hmm. He doesn't necessarily want it to be unreliable, but of course, who says, I would really like an unreliable, beautiful car. <laughs> who says that? I'm not sure. Can I get something that really is a better planter than automobile, but it needs to look gorgeous? It doesn't need to run, but it needs to look nice. Yeah, I keep going. So he's going to modify this car, the basics, bolt-ons, coilovers, some wheels, a few things. But he's not going to use this car as the daily driver because of mm-hmm. winter and because of fuel. So that rules out some big V8s for him. But he wants handling to be high on the priori- priority list, something yep. really yep. great, a little bit of power, and he's considering all these, oh, man, some all these cars on here. The list is long, and it actually goes back. Speaking of older cars, it goes back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a great list. It's a great list. But, I mean, I, I read this, and, and <laughs> what I find funny is about halfway through this, I feel like Henrik stops himself and backs up and goes, wait, wait, wait. I still would like some decent power because the entire mm-hmm. email up to that point is all has to be lightweight, has to be fun, has to be all about handling, 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 handling. And then I think he realizes somewhere <laughs> along in there, I'm going to try to sell him like a 50 horsepower car that handles great. So he goes, wait, wait, wait. I still would like some power because on his list, he has the uh, BRZ or GT86. And his question is, is this going to feel underpowered? Am I going to get bored? But you are beating on the drum of handling backwards and forwards. And and also connecting it to must have a good aftermarket scene because you want to play with this car. Great list of cars here. Start start going, Paul. There's a good list. <laughs> you see, Lotus Elise is not on this list. Great handling, fifty True. horsepower. I mean, the end, right? <laughs> and and I will take one in every color. Anyway, All right, keep going. that was a little bit of a shot. All right. Anyway, uh, so you've talked about reliability here. Even though you sound like you're willing to do a little bit of work. You do want some reliability, and therefore, mm-hmm. I, I have to say, the Japanese-built cars jump to the top of the list because they just sure, are. Sure, yeah. You're mm-hmm. 19, Henrik. I feel like you've got the rest of your life to enjoy your European brethren, the European-built cars where you're nearby, of course, but BMWs, yeah. Porsches, all that kind of stuff, you've got a long time to go experience those, but for right now... Let's just get you something fun. It's going to be reliable, and you can throw mm-hmm, mm-hmm. inexpensive parts at it, and they're going to make the car respond. I feel like European cars need a little bit more coddling and coaxing. Maybe not. Maybe not. Certainly as they get older, those European cars. That's the thing. I mean, well, he's yeah. got I have to. I have to call out. He's got the E46 M3 BMW on here. We love that car. Oh, yeah. We love yeah, it. Yeah. It's, a, it's a great car. But, you know, what is it, the cracked rear subframe that is almost a guarantee if you buy a used one? And, <laughs> yeah, and Jamie, yeah. Jamie, our very generous owner, he actually joined us on our pilgrimage trip. Jamie, who has the gorgeous Laguna Seca Blue uh, E46, he said one of my favorite things about that car. I don't even know if you heard it. He, mm. he said a great thing about the maintenance on that car because he's owned multiple. In fact, at one point, he had three E46 M3s in different kind of race spec, one between fully stock and one a full race car. He owned three at one time. I mean, this guy has the disease big time. His comment to me was, he said, in general, these cars are reliable. But if anything goes wrong, it costs at least five figures. Oh, my gosh. Five figures. And I, What? And he just said it kind of in passing. He was like, it's going to cost probably five figures to fix just about anything. So, And he's a guy that if it needed something, he just did it. He was like, you know, Ooh. by and large, runs well. But and, and he said it as, I mean, you know, Jamie, Paul, he said it kind of tongue in cheek and laughing, but he wasn't kidding either. So that's the thing about the E46. Voice of experience there, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, a ton. I mean, he has has literally tracked one of those cars around the U.S. So, I mean, he has spent money on them. So, of course, he's beating on it hard, so take that into consideration. But, I mean, Zach uh, over at Smoking Tire just bought one, and he's been regaling them with stories of the fact that, okay, here's what this car needs. Mm -hmm. So that's the thing I think you're bumping into, Paul, is that the European stuff – can run, can be great, would be fun. But if we're talking about you're 19, you don't want to spend a lot of money on, on reliability, it needs to just run. 
that's where I think it starts to lose. Yeah, yeah. I, and for that reason, I just I'm leaning towards the Japanese cars. You've listed the Skyline GTR, the R32, and R33. Yeah. Because apparently, Henrik tells us they're cheaper in Sweden than in the U.S. How much cheaper, Henrik? Because uh, interesting. <laughs> we're, we're both going. Can you buy one of those just so we could come drive it? Yeah, I hear you. Well, yeah, no kidding. I mean, let's go to Sweden and you know, <laughs> road trip. Wait, snow. no, that's going to take a boat or a plane. Wait, that's going to be a problem. <laughs> hey, we're coming either way. Man, I, I like this because how many times have we recommended these cars? Well, none because yeah. for most yeah. people on the planet, they're out of reach because of these cars. They're halo cars. And they're so much more expensive. If you truly can get into these cars far less expensively than the rest of us, I say mm, that's really mm. interesting. But on the other hand, it is. they're probably at the top of the list in terms of power. You've got Evo 5 and 6, Evo 8 and 9, the Honda S2000, all the usual suspects mm-hmm. here. The Miata ND, the brand new Miata, Nissan 350 yeah. and 370Zs, and then all the European usual suspects, 944 Turbo, as you said, the BMW E46 M3, all that kind of stuff. But... Skyline yeah. GTR? Oh, wow. I, yeah. Mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. And have it at your age? <laughs> Mama, uh, that would be really interesting, I think. Um, it would be, yeah. I mean, I don't know. Obviously, we don't have it really experience with that car. So I don't know what kind of reliability those cars uh, have, what they require in maintenance. The problem with the current uh, global GTR is just it is a constant maintenance hog. It, True. It's it's True. a it's a world killer. It just you know what would you like to to go faster than today is kind of what that car asks you, <laughs> but it, you it's pay the for it. Screen you know. every time you start up. Guess, which car would you exactly. Like? Scroll, scroll, scroll. Exactly. Which car would you like to beat? You know, you're scrolling <laughs> through the menus. That's exactly. That's actually why they partnered with the the Gran Turismo company so they can show you all those car pictures that you would like to right. beat today. I'd like to beat that one today. Anyway, great idea. No, but, but the th- the thing about that car is it's just talk about consumables. It just needs stuff all the time. Yeah, I don't know yeah. if those older Skylines are that way or not. I just can't speak to it. So it's something you have to research. Really interesting. Of course, we're a little biased and intrigued by it because we can't get them, but I do think it's a good option here. Yeah. And, you know, I think, all right, well, maybe start you off in something naturally aspirated, but it's like, uh, you know, people always told me about a 650 bike. You know, they'd say, well, it's good for learning how to ride motorcycles, but you're going to want a 750 or a 900 sooner rather than later. So just get something with power. You know, same thing with cars. It's, you know, not that the S2000 is bad in any way. We love it for its dynamics and for as it is. But if you're still coming back to something with power, and wanting to tune it, all that stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I mean, none of these are bad choices. I'm, I'm waffling back and forth, as you can tell. But I guess I'm leaning yeah. towards something that is a little bit more rare, a little bit more unique. It's still got a plenty of power. I'd really be curious as to what the handling is on these earlier uh, Skyline GTRs. And, sure. uh, you know, because we've recommended the Miatas, the S2000s, the 350 and the 370 plenty of times. Sure. They sure. feel like known quantities, don't you think? They feel like yeah, we know it. Yeah, I mean, we, we know who those cars are and how they're going to develop. But that's, that's kind of why I start leaning that direction. I mean, I have to talk of the usual suspects here because with Henrik talking about – I mean, he's even concerned about the price of gas. Okay, so we need to have halfway decent gas mileage. I mean, I think Miata, the GT86, or the S2000 gets this done. Mm-hmm. And I think the question for Henrik is really usability and what do you need this car for? Because if it's just going to be fun drives, the S2000 rises kind of to the top. If it really is going to be a tuner project car, I would probably go Miata, maybe even the NC. Why not get an NC? You're talking about you could reach for an ND. Get an NC. Which reminds me, hmm. there was a question a while back where somebody asked, why when we recommend the NC do we recommend the hard top? I want to speak to that real quickly. Look, the soft top is lighter. Obviously, it is. There's nothing wrong with the soft soft top. A lot of times, I come back to the hard top personally because I feel like you you end up with a coupe. You have the Are you option talking of structurally. Gotta, you mean yes. You end up with a coupe. You've got a because I think I'm thinking in terms of the weather we've had here in Utah the last couple of weeks. I would rather be in a hard top NC Miata than a soft top NC Miata. And our friend Henrik here is in Sweden, so I'm going to say hard top NC. But there isn't anything wrong with the soft top. But I would also say if you really need this car to have any usability, I know this is going to sound nuts. The GT86 wins of those three. But the fold-down rear seat and all that, that, that's a car that you can actually get stuff in. That may not even matter. Henrik, that may be irrelevant. Then, okay. 
But all three of those cars, great aftermarket opportunities, halfway decent gas mileage, not great, but decent, uh, certainly better than like big V8s and that kind of thing. Um, and I also think they're cars you can grow with. You get them, you hoon them, you enjoy them, and then you put some other part on it and it changes it. I think it's the perfect place to start, one of those three. I like it. I'm just leaning on un, unusable, not practical, yeah. just hair You're on fire. You're excited about forbidden fruit. Yeah, I really absolutely. am. I almost feel like the rest of us listening want you to go that way. I'm speaking for all of you, of course, and you can't. You're pounding the dash in frustration because you can't yell back. I understand. But I, I feel like, gosh, start off just hair on fire and you can always pull it back. Blue sky and then we can always pull back, Right. <laughs> Just yeah, head head out there and get the car that we all kind of wonder like, huh? Do I have to sell a body part for that and choose which teeth I have to <laughs> give up just to get? I actually don't like need that. that molar. I you know what? I'll just chew on the left side. What can I get for the right side molars? <laughs> exactly. Terrible. Because yeah, you'll. I mean, how many more opportunities in life? are you going to get when you get older and down the road and maybe a family and all that stuff and you think yeah huh, yeah yeah i wish i would have gone for the crazy nutter whatever the mitsubishis are cool well now mm, yeah too practical they've got a back seat like four now is and, the time for impractical you're absolutely right now is the time when you could buy an s2000 or a miata and not blink about the fact that you can't carry lots of people with you yeah who cares yep just off. Just, I, I bought it. I love it. Moving on. So, I mean, you know, Edgar, who shoots with us, bought a gorgeous – hello, Edgar – bought a gorgeous red 2006 AP2 S2000 that I liked so much when I was there. I, I couldn't get the thought out of my brain. And I like my FRS. I couldn't get the thought out of my brain. I was like, should I get one of these? I really like these. <laughs> I could this see is that. really awesome. I could oh, see my that. gosh. That car is awesome. So, I mean, you can't go wrong with any of these three. I think you have to take a very serious look about how you want to work on it. Miatas are Legos. What do you want to put on them? And the FRS is quickly chasing it of just parts and options. And you ask if it's going to be a bit slow. Look, I, you know, the, you've asked for handling first and foremost. If you have a great handling car, you can add power. Easier, I submit, than having a really well-powered car that doesn't handle well. Just Great chassis, all kinds you can, of sense you can here. bolt more power, power to it. I, just, I try every now and then. Making I get all lucky. kinds of sense. We and see. I'm, I'm trying know. to throw caution to the wind here. Come on. <laughs> I'm being far too rational. <laughs> Hopefully it's helpful for Henrik. But I do like the idea of, hi, I'm 19, I'm from Sweden, and that is my GTR. That is fun, I have to admit. Yes! Yeah. And then you get to send us a photo, and we'll post it, and that'll be that. We're literally jumping around the globe on this podcast. Here we are in Utah doing a podcast about Nepal, Sweden, and now we're going to Australia. So this is truly a globe-trotting, all-around-the-world international podcast. Let's talk about Bruce's ridiculous story. <laughs> Bruce writes to us and says that his wife is so sick of him changing cars every nine months that she has made a deal with him. If he sells his final edition Mitsubishi Evo within three years, she'll walk out the front door and buy a $5,000 Australian or $3,500 U.S. dollar handbag. Everyone, mm -hmm. <laughs> as Todd said, the crazy, the crazy purse. He's yeah. got a new tax. Any uh -huh. car that he now considers adds the handbag tax, and yep. he's got yep. this itch. He's thinking about this, <laughs> and he writes to us, actually considering adding this handbag tax onto his next car, and saying, "Honey, all right, I get a new car. You he's, get a brand new handbag." He's pretty much wow. considering it in the price. I mean, talk it, forget Paul limiter for a minute. This is the purse limiter. I mean, this is where oh, wow. we are. That's great. That's he's, great. He's got, he has an extra, let's just call it $4,000 US tax on any car he buys because his wife is going to go take that money and buy what she would like to do. Kind of tongue in cheek, but also because she'd like it and he keeps spending money on cars. So anything you buy has that problem. Wow. Um, and. I have to say, adding insult to injury, you're not thinking of buying cheap cars. Yeah, no kidding. You're thinking of getting rid of your final edition Evo, which I would say sell to me if we didn't have to ship it across the world. But anyway, uh, you're considering selling <laughs> your final world. edition, and, and it's and it's also right-hand drive, which is a bit problematic for me. So oh, it'd be cool. It, it, it'd be cool and different. It'd be cool for five minutes till I have to back through a drive-through with my son and think, no, this isn't happening. Oh, right. But right. anyway. <laughs> 
because we actually do that. But anyway, but uh, so he had this final edition Evo. But what you're thinking of in replacement is buying an M2. So it's not like, all right, honey, I'm going to get another car, but at least this one's cheap. No, let's go buy an M2. This is what you're debating. I have some alternative cars for you. But ultimately, we're talking about the purse tax. <laughs> it's the purse tax. I've never heard of this. This is great, Bruce. And not only do I think you should, but I think you should add to it. And let me tell you how. Oh, no. I think you need to grease the skids for the future, too. We're not just thinking this car. But what if you took your wife to Hawaii to buy said handbag? Take a nice little vacation. Hong Kong, New Zealand, Hawaii, Fiji (laughs) Islands. I don't know how much good shopping there is in Fiji. but The amount of money we are spending (laughs) for poor Fred Bruce is shocking. Did you think I was going to throttle back no, I didn't in any think, way? No, I didn't think you were going to cut back at all. But we have just, yeah, we have spent pretty much his <laughs> national earnings. A nice vacation. <laughs> let's oh let's pick Hawaii or, yeah, Hong Kong or something like that. And it's a surprise trip. And you take her and you buy the handbag first and then have a wonderful vacation. And then <laughs> maybe during the vacation you broach the subject of – so now that we're doing this, what do you think about an M2? I love the M2. I think you'd love it. <laughs> I, yeah, maybe just a nice vacation. Don't you guys take a vacation anyway? You're going somewhere anyway this year, right? So I, just kind I of have, wrap it all oh, up in man. one big giant package. And then you can always look back and say, hey, remember the time we went to such and such place and we got the handbag for you? Yeah, where do you want to go next? Because I want a new car. So there you go. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I, I, here, here's the thing. One part of me is horrified, and then another part of me, halfway through what you were saying, had a brilliant idea to add to your idea. Oh, no. Here's More how money? nuts we're going to get real quick for poor Bruce. Oh, no. Here's how nuts we're going to get real quick. Can you get European delivery on a right-hand drive car? I, I just wonder. Can you do that? Uh, I, I mean, don't know. you and I don't Somebody think about it, know. but I wonder if they could. But anyway, I've never thought here's of that. what I'm thinking. Here's where I'm thinking, Bruce. You ready? If Paul's (laughs) going to spend a bunch of your money, I'm going to give you your trip itinerary. You ready? Here we go. Here's the trip itinerary. You go from Australia to Europe. You take your wife to Paris. Then you go to Germany. Oh. If we can coordinate this properly, here's what you do. You take European (laughs) delivery of your M2 right the week before we at Everyday Driver take our pilgrimage trip. By the way, that's going to be late September. You join us for the pilgrimage trip with your lovely wife. You drive your new European delivery car on the Nürburgring and Spa. Then you fly back to Australia, and in like, what, a month or two, your car will show up. (laughs) If we're going to spend money, let's blow it out. I'm just saying. Wow. I love the idea even more, actually. I'm going to wrench us back down to something resembling reality, not that. A $4,000 purse really is reality. But I'm going to wrench us toward reality and try to help Bruce out. But I do love our amazing trip itinerary uh, travel planning that we've just done for our friend Bruce. <laughs> we're here to be your financial planners, your travel no, agents. We're not. And spend we're your money on cool to cars. destroy your budget. Your budget will never be the same. It's a great idea. I love ideas. Again, blue sky, we can always pull back. At least let's put it out there. And I love that you've done that. <laughs> Now oh, oh, no. we can pull it back. But I'm I'm loving the M2. I mean, you've had so many other cars here. You said your last car is a 2012 Jaguar XKR, but you've had mm-hmm. a still-in-conversion 300ZX, 95. Gorgeous. Todd's was gorgeous, a 1990. Oh, so that was the last that is, build year? That is cool. Was that the last no, build year? No, last, last, last one for the U.S. was 96, but they made them in Japan, and they may have had them in Australia till like – 98 or 2000. They made them for three or four more years in Japan. But I'm they weren't sure available else in the U.S. Them. That's right. Okay. 96 was the last U.S. year, but I think Australia got them for longer. But anyway. Keep so going. those those are the notable ones. He said he's had a lot of other cars, 22 in total, over 20 years of wow. driving. Doesn't name them all here, but definitely those are some of the cooler ones. And uh, yeah, you've got the final edition Evo now, but man, M2. And you know the disease is never going to stop. And so that's why we're trying to do this, hey, grease the skids for the future, because something else will come out that will be the new standard and we'll all love it and it'll be the new recipe that we all want, 
right? So well, what you're well, what you're saying, Paul, is this: if Bruce's problem is that right now, if he buys a car, his wife gets a purse, then what you're suggesting, and I think you're right, is that the next time he wants to buy something in another nine months, now what's it going to cost him? This one's the purse yeah. tax. The next one's the I don't know tax. <laughs> so this is why we're building your, you a European wonder trip for Bruce's dear wife. Hello, because uh, yeah, I think the purse tax is only for this car. The next tax might be really problematic. But here's what I did for you, Bruce. I actually thought, okay, if we're going to talk about the purse tax, I'm just staying with that. If we're going to talk about the purse tax, why not buy something used? Why not buy something cheaper than the M2? Something that's already there, already Mm -hmm. on the market, and has been out for a couple of years, gets you into something new, different, fun, but a little bit cheaper. And here are the places that I went. Okay. (laughs) The purse tax. I'm sorry. The I just, purse I, tax. I, I but the purse tax still exists, it. whether it's new or used, because he's changing cars. Uh, yes. Right? I realize that. But what I'm saying is, if you're talking – look, I'm going to talk in U.S. prices for a second because I'm not sure the Australian price of the M2. But if the M2 is going to cost you fifty five grand with a $5,000 purse, it's now a $60,000 car. <laughs> what if you bought – I'm just saying. So what funny. if you bought a year-old M235i for thirty five grand? Now you've only spent forty. Because yeah, the purse tax good. on top of it. So that was actually one of the ones I thought of. What about the M235 or now the M40? I'm not sure what prices are in Australia or availability of those cars. But that is a great car. Gets you 90% of the M2 with you know 75% of the cost. If you go used, it might be 50% of the cost. Right. So right. I think the M235i is a real consideration. You are a guy that loved your heavy-duty Jaguar. So I have to say to you, have you driven the F-Type? Although that's going to be up that there is, in price, though. Maybe not. Well, I'm, but I'm talking used. 2014? I'm, I'm talking used, yeah. Get get uh, get the first or second year. Get it in V6. Uh, get, the, the, get the middle grade power. I'm going to get it wrong. But their middle grade power is their uh, hopped up V6. That's just about the sweet spot of that car. If you really want power, you could go for the big boy with the V8. But I don't know that that's necessary. The dynamics of that car are surprisingly good. I and mean, it's a genuine 911 alternative. So I, I think look at the F-Type. And then I have to say it. I've already hinted at it. What about a used 911? You're talking about you kind of want the luxury and the fun and the refinement of your Jaguar, but you kind of like the, the driving fun of an Evo. Okay, so what about a all-wheel drive 911 used? Have you looked at that? Yeah. I, yeah. You know, they're down there. You can get them all-wheel drive. You could get – I mean, or don't get them all-wheel drive. But I'm just saying you haven't mentioned – Owning a Porsche or driving a Porsche, I think you need to drive a used 911 and maybe even a used Cayman. But I was really struck by the, like, the feel, the luxury feel of the Jaguar, but want the handling of the Evo. That made me think that you're kind of circling the 911 F-type world there. <laughs> or drain. <laughs> you're right. We are circling the financial end of your budget. You, we absolutely are doing that. This is That sucking sound you hear is your money flying uh-huh. out the door. As your wife leaves to go buy said purse, wow. so uh, yeah, this is happening. But those are my those are my ideas. But I think a couple year old used something to get you into something different and to offset the <clears throat> the handbag or purse tax. Wow, I like your ideas here. I do, and you're just making all kinds of sense. Once again, I'm in this mood for some reason of throwing everything out the window. But uh, I I like the M2 and I like your 911 idea. My concern is, is the 911 price increase, is that a global thing? Have 911s in Australia also shot through the roof in unnecessary Mm -hmm. financial ways? If they have, it's going to be harder. I mean, you'll spend every bit as much as an M2 or M235i, something like that. Gosh, maybe more. I hope not. You know, just to get into yeah, something you depends. really love. Otherwise, you're looking back at the 996 generation. They're available, less expensive, but then there's trade-offs, you know, styling and all that jazz. So yeah. I love the 911 idea. I'm just wondering, have they held their value or just skyrocketed past, and therefore it's sort of, mm. you know, would well, love but I feel it, like but the, way too expensive. The very, the very early 991s and the very late 997s, I feel like that's the sweet spot right now in used 911s where they are far cheaper than you think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, 997 turbos are cheaper in a sense. They're still expensive cars. No, no, no. I'm not talking let's buy the biggest, hottest one we can. I'm talking, you know, you're not going to be that hot. But the the late 997s. I was way out here in blue sky world again. (laughs) Of course course you have him buying the turbo. You know, while you're at it, get the Turbo S. Why stop (laughs) at the turbo when you can have an S on the back? (laughs) You didn't think you needed ceramic brakes, but you do. 
I met a guy at a at the Park City Car Club one night in a gorgeous same color as your car. What is that? What is that color? What is Porsche call it? Sapphire. GTS. Yeah, he was in a Sapphire 911 Turbo S. And he said to me with a straight face, I mean, incredibly <laughs> nice man, incredible car, but he said to me with a straight face, I, I, I actually, I did a fantastic job in the moment of just not letting this ripple my, my countenance. But I remember thinking, what did you just say? He said, yeah, I had the Turbo. And after having it for a month or so, I just thought, I have to have the Turbo S. And I thought, why? What, really? What in driving the Turbo made you say, yeah, I got to get the S? <laughs> Porsche figured out they could extract more money from their crazed enthusiasts like me by offering the S with slightly more horsepower and the zero to 60 times, and I think are unchanged or maybe a tenth of a second off, things that you can't feel. You can't feel that. You can't. <laughs> so, yeah. So, Bruce is going. So, so where we let me, let me, let me sum up here. What we've landed on is that Bruce, who came to us with an M2, I'm just going to go. Nuts for a second. <laughs> Bruce, who came to us with, should I buy an M2 and a $5,000 handbag, is now f- traveling to Paris and Germany to buy a Porsche Turbo S and go on a shopping trip. We have pretty much financially ruined our friend Bruce. <laughs> Bruce, that's, we're sorry. That's where that went. We're yeah. sorry. Mm-hmm. But the good news is, as we wrap up here with Bruce's story, is that his wife has said, in the end, <laughs> if changing cars is the worst thing Bruce does, she can live with that. So, yeah. There is as, some as, light at the end of the tunnel, and it's not a train. As vices go, as vices exactly as vices go, that's not that bad. I have to agree. I totally agree. <laughs> Man, are we spending money? Who else wants to spend money? Who on Facebook oh and Twitter God. and Instagram wants to spend some money here? We are we are nowhere near reality. I'm hoping some of these questions <laughs> on social media will bring us somewhere near. But however, I just said social media connecting us with reality, which is probably flawed to begin with. But let's jump in anyway. What do you have? Well, A.J. Gall has already asked about the Paul Limiter. He's asking, why is this extra money called the Paul Limiter instead of the Paul Allowance? I think it's in <laughs> terms of turning things up to 11. Like, this is our, uh, this is the yes. limit. But, you know, Paul has squeezed even more. So this is Paul's version of your limiter, you know. I, I think it's – I still think it's appropriate. The Paul Allowance <laughs> is, you know, that seems endless. But, you know, the limiter is – Here's your budget. I've blown it up just a little bit, but look how much yeah. happier you are. It's it works. So I, I'm still they, sticking with the Paul limiter. If they told you it was an allowance, you'd go back to negotiate for more money. I understand what's happening. Well, I there do. you go. That's I a good do. point. Yeah. This one goes to eleven. Yes, I, I get it. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. I'm with you. Um, okay. Yeah. <laughs> we none of us can believe it exists. What what I laugh about is the fact that we have so fully embraced the Paul limiter, and this evening. It was nowhere in sight. Way you were way out in the weeds. Uh, wow! Yeah, no kidding. Uh, on Twitter, Kay Cogliano wrote a very interesting question that I'm not I'm not sure how serious you are, but I'm going to answer it as if you are serious. You wrote in and said you're thinking about shipping a car to Park City, so what's the best month to spend a week driving around in Utah? Hmm. Okay. All right. If you're going to, please say hello. Uh, I'm going to say, as far as Utah, Utah's got great driving roads. We love many of them. If I'm going to talk about Utah in general for a second, and then I'll come back to the more Park City area. If you were going to drive the more classic uh, Utah big vistas that people are thinking of, like Moab and Zion and the big straight roads and the you know the uh, the buttes and that kind of thing, if you're going to drive that. That gets really hot in the summertime, so April is probably prime time for that. But if you're going to be in our area, I will say to you, I'm going to tip our hand real quick. We shot both the 50 Years of 9-11 and the Icon film the longest week of the year. That third week of June is magic driving time in Utah because the days are incredibly long. And because of snowmelt, I'm getting all geeky, but because of snowmelt, that is when this place practically looks like Hawaii. It is crazy green in the month of June. Mm. Not even in May. June is when it's crazy green. The d- days are gorgeous. The weather's perfect. It doesn't get all that hot up here. You know, we're at uh, 6,500 feet. So a hot day for us is 80, 85. So if you're really going to do this, I think that's prime time. I like it. I like it. I uh, would like to add bugs because early springtime – you're just going to get splattered with everything. And that was probably mm, mm. a week or two. Even on some of the shoot of Icon, we got some splattery stuff. And it just – it's like it's cement on the front of your car. So even though you think, yeah. oh, it'll just wash right off, actually it doesn't. <laughs> so you have to get the bugs <laughs> off soon. Otherwise, yeah, they leave a, a mark 
and uh, yeah, should I, should I tell? Should I tell my public service announcement about <laughs> M2s and speed and bugs? Should, should I give that service announcement? Uh, yes, yes, I think you should. Uh, okay, so this is something I learned on the Icon shoot. Just a little tidbit. We were on, look, we were on back roads, empty roads, middle of nowhere stuff for the for that shoot. It was a wonderful shoot. Uh, <laughs> caveat, we would come caveat. down at the, Yeah, yeah, we would come down at the end of very long days. And um, uh, I'm wondering how clear I should be on this. Here's the thing. There is a speed where crazy things happen with bugs. You know, you're driving down at the end of the day, and you can see in the side light, you can see the swarms of gnats that are lingering over the heat of the road. Okay, I'm trying to paint a picture here. Follow me. I'm in the M2. I'm going rather quickly. Um, yeah, I got into triples. I found my daily triple. And what was happening is uh, I was driving along in this high speed, and um, there's that flow of air that you're pushing out in front of the car. And it's parting the bugs perfectly. I discovered there is a speed in the triples where <laughs> the the air being pushed by the front of the M2 no longer parts the sea of gnats. And instead of going through a cloud of gnats, they now completely cover the windshield. You have, you have pressed through, if you will, <laughs> it's the gnat barrier. You've heard of the sound barrier. This is the gnat barrier. Nice. The point at which now nice. all they do is pepper the front of your car. So you may have to play with that. If you're going to come out here, you can find out what the gnat barrier is for your car. I've discovered it on the M2. It's, it's up there. But there's about a three or four mile per hour difference where, look, I'm passing through bugs and no no now they're all on the windshield so there you go <laughs> very good yeah public service announcement there uh s thomas on instagram is asking about porsche and why they've had so much success putting the engine in the rear and he mm. also goes on to ask why haven't any other manufacturers successfully replicated this sort of taking the beetle out of the equation i mean that that would be the biggest example of the rear engine success right there yeah, of course of yep. course but look at you know, other cars that have tried this, you know, the uh, the Corvair comes to mind. I mean, did that look really yep. amazing? No, I don't think it did. And I think proportion. There's people that love styling, those, though. Yeah, there are, there are, but it never really lasted, of course. It did have uh, Ralph Nader problems. However, <laughs> I will say uh, the, the proportion and the styling and general feel, the handling of the car, really helped. I, it, It's hard to explain, but... People just gravitated towards it. They loved it. The shape helped. The Beetle was good and recognizable, but Porsche did it better. And well, but yeah, there's a there's a natural dynamics problem with engine in the rear, and we joked about it on our film Fifty Years of Nine Eleven. I mean, what has happened over the progression of that car? Is look, it's been much beloved, which is why it survived. They wanted to kill it at one point, and it survived anyway. So. What, but what has happened over the course of the 911, all the way up to that, that current, what is it called, the, the RTR or whatever, what's the, the new, or the RSR, what's the new one we just saw at the LA Auto Show? Oh, this where they the actually made, they actually made the 911 mid-engined. This is what they've slowly been doing over the course of the car, is inching that engine forward because dynamically it's problematic. And a lot of other automakers had serious problems with cooling on rear engine cars. Mm-hmm. And... That was something Porsche figured out early on. It's amazing to me. With all the manufacturers that had issues with rear engine cooling issues, they figured it out air-cooled, let alone liquid-cooled, which speaks to the engineering prowess there. But, you know, we've joked about the fact that as much as we like the 911, the Cayman, ultimately, it's the better platform because it isn't rear-engined. That is a dynamic issue for sure. And why does that still not stop me from wanting a 911? I, I can't explain because it. You, because you swim in the pool of Porsche and we can't get you out. The lifeguards can't help us. We've thrown you the little ring thing. You don't care. You're just swimming around happily in the pool of Porsche, never to be removed. I'm, I'm doing and the dog why. paddle. I guess so. Yes. Uh, it <laughs> it's the 2017 911 RSR that went mid-engine. So you can look that up. Yeah. And that's for the World Endurance Championship that Porsche has introduced yeah, I I get it. I mean, they're they're probably going to be faster, and the weight will be better. Uh, the weight mm-hmm. distribution will be better. But uh, and I realize for those of you listening that Porsche did work on the early Beetles. They were, you know, he was a part of that. But of then, course. oh yeah, you yeah, know, moved definitely. on, making his own shape and his own company, of course. But uh, yeah, just the the shape. I I think it's just so classic, and uh, yeah, I, I I think that's I think that's where I'm going to leave it. He made the Beetle sports car, and now it's a legend. Uh, so I want to write. I want to talk about uh, two that are connected here. Uh, Kelvin wrote to us on Facebook, 
and Chad wrote to us on Twitter, and their questions related to each other. Hmm. Uh, Kelvin wrote and asked, okay, so what car under $20,000 could do the best job of passing for a very expensive car that would be great engine sound, not ridiculously expensive to maintain, and seems like a, a just a great car to own, and nobody will believe he spent twenty grand. And then he says, please no mention of Mercs, Audis, or BMWs. So you've taken out a massive swath of things that could have answered that question. <laughs> so you've asked that question. And I have to say, as much as I don't swim in the pool of Porsche, the, the, the answer here, Kelvin, is a Porsche. Because you can get first-gen Boxsters for you know, used Miata money, okay? And nobody, if you get one that looks halfway decent, nobody that pulls up next to you will think you had a $10,000 car. If you're spending twenty, you can get yourself, pick your options as far as really nice Caymans, and nobody will think it's a $20,000 car. Uh, the reason I'm relating this to Chad's question is because Chad is asking, since first-gen Boxsters are now ten grand or less, are they bargains or ticking time bombs? <laughs> <laughs> wow. I would say to you that, look, to this question, you can get a car that seems much more expensive than what you paid for it by shopping used Porsches. However, please do pre-purchase inspections. Please figure out with a Porsche mechanic what's been done to the car or needs to be done to the car. If you're anywhere close to the major service intervals, assume that service interval has not been done. Right. The problem with Porsches right. is not reliability. It's the cost of maintenance. So back to Kelvin's question, I don't think that a used Porsche is going to break the bank for you as far as just randomly breaking down, but you're going to have to shop and get a good one. And then to Chad's question, I'm jumping back and forth, to Chad's question, a less than $10,000 Boxster would scare me, not because would it still run, but because what does it need right now? After I did all that, my $10,000 Boxster might be $16,000. But then I might have a Boxster that runs for a while. Well, yeah, it, it happened to me when I owned the 928. I bought that for 19.5, and it looks like an $80,000 car. Now the nice ones have skyrocketed; they've gone way back up. Mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah. I, I bought that for just under 20, and I had a guy walk up to me one time and he said, "Hey, is this thing restored?" I thought, "Really? No." Hmm. And he was shocked. And it looks like a 70 or 80 thousand dollar car, and that's what it did cost new in 88 when it was brand new. But, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah it, it kind of it, – it does have that perception, and I think that's why a lot of people are concerned. They've written us before about perception. If you do get into the Porsche or something flashy mm, and hot, mm. you're sort of looked at as, wow, we're paying you too much money. But the, sure, the reality yeah. is, <laughs> look, I, I shopped smart, and I got this fantastic, amazing car for something that fit my budget. But you have yeah, to sort of yeah. justify it to people. Sometimes they won't even believe you. Like, you really yeah. – you're driving a Porsche, you know, that kind of thing. So it happens, but, you know. There, there's one other car I wonder about, Kelvin, that may match this too. Because, again, you've taken out Mercedes, Audis, and BMWs. So there's all of those are off the table. So if I stay away from that, I actually say this to you. For $20,000, shop the C6 Corvette. Get a really nice-looking one of those. Nobody's going to believe that's a $20,000 car. That's true. That's and, very true. I mean, they, they, you know, Look, the Corvette is, does not have the mystique of the Porsche, and you know people you know might guess it cost you forty, but I don't think if you get a nice C six, really well specked out, nobody's going to think you spent twenty grand. That car's dynamically good, sounds good. I think that's a real option here as well. Mm-hmm. Another public service announcement comes your way, courtesy of Jed Soriano's question about trade in <laughs> versus <laughs> private party selling, and what is our preference when it comes mm-hmm. time to sell it. Look, I always go for the private party selling because there's things you can do to get more money, to extract more money out of your car. If you think about mm, it, trade sure. in, you know, that's going to be turned around and resold, so they need to buy it for less than they're going to sell it, so they need to make a profit, and that means they're going to way undercut you, which is the problem. So if you trade it in, it's very easy and they make it easy for you to do that, whether it's a used car dealer or, you know, brand new and you're trading it in, it, that but you know, keep in mind, they're going to turn it right back around, clean it up, and do the things mm-hmm. you could do. Yeah. Now, that's yeah, not true. always an option for everybody. I understand not everybody has the wherewithal or the time or energy to do that. But when you do the private party sale thing, you can have the car detailed, pay $250, do the full detail, make it look as brand new as you can, get everything yeah, yeah. cleaned up real nice, all that stuff – take photos, you know, you can really 
curate your own selling experience for somebody certainly. rather than just certainly, yeah. sort of sloughing it off and, you know what, I just want to be done with it. You know, depends on the car, of course, but I feel like you can always add one, maybe $2,000 to your selling price if you take mm-hmm. care of it and, and do your own sales process there. You know, take care of it, curate it, clean everything up, and uh, yeah. that's that's yeah. my preference. But, of course, not everybody has the time. Sometimes it's just I got to get rid of it, you know, move it on. So, Well, I think you're speaking to one of the number one reasons that I, I say trade in. But I generally don't. I think private party is better. The biggest benefit of trade-in is hassle factor. If you don't have the time or availability or wherewithal to deal with the people that will come and kick the tires and ask you questions and try to talk you down and all of that stuff that will happen in a private party sale, if you can't, for whatever reason, can't tolerate or can't make the time to do that, that's where the trade-in is beneficial. I totally agree with Paul. You have a much better chance of selling to the right person at a price that you're comfortable with doing a private party sale than doing the trade-in. But if you are in a situation of either for speed or hassle, you need to wash your hands of it, trade-in is the way that gets that done. The the alternate, I would say, to that is sell it to CarMax. If it's a recent car, you can sell it to CarMax. Now, they will give you a flat rate price. If it's old enough, they'll give you the wholesale price, which brace yourself to be horrified. But if it's a recent enough car, they can resell <laughs> it on their lots. Right. But they give you a, this is what we'll pay you for your car. They, they do the inspection. They say, this is all, all there is. So it's not really a trade-in because you're not buying from them, but it is a way to get cash out of your car in a straightforward way. Uh, but it's not the way to get the most money. That's certainly private party. Yeah. I uh, When I was selling my Cayman S, the 07 Cayman S, CarMax offered me 23 and I ended up selling it private party for 29 I mean, right there. Cause, there you go. Yep. You know, they Perfect were going to turn around for a profit, of course. They need to make their money. But yeah, uh, yeah. that was a huge difference for me. So I just I ended up going uh, private party, and twenty nine thousand was still fair. I felt like so. I agree. No, I no. Your car was definitely worth that when you sold it. It was gorgeous. Yeah, Pre, uh, yeah. Uh, certified Paul owned for sure. Uh, so <laughs> Scott wrote to us on on Facebook and asked what I can only describe as a can of worms question. Um, I'm going to do some careful stepping through the minefield of Scott's question. He says, having watched our recent FRS tuning video. What do we think of the tuning community? And then he brings up TJ Hunt, who's uh, a vlogger, and, and he's talked about, apparently he's talked about the, the tuning community being, and the enthusiast community being very acerbic now, and, and so what do we think, and, and all that kind of stuff. Again, here's me careful stepping through a minefield. Um, <laughs> here, if you, if you watch our, our FRS, uh, the supercharged versus naturally aspirated tuning video that we just dropped, it's a fascinating place to read comments if you're if you brace yourself. You might need to put on the hazmat suit, but wait on in there. Because <laughs> here's the thing. Tuning is the ultimate, you know what you should have done, world. It doesn't matter what you did to your car. The minute you take it from stock, anybody that is a car enthusiast has an opinion on the quality of what you did and what you should have done. And what's the right answer uh, is really totally unknown. I, you know, yeah. this guy yeah. did this variation and that guy did that variation and they both love their cars and they both had a power gain or a handling gain or, oh my gosh, this is endless. There, there really is no stopping it. What I find sad about it is that people get a little, violence the wrong word, but it's not far off. They get, they get quite aggressive about just why on earth wasn't this done this way and why on earth aren't you getting these numbers and this should happen and A plus B equals. Uh, honestly, if you're not doing the massive R&D work that a uh, major manufacturer makes and then right behind that that a major tuning company makes, if you personally aren't doing that R&D work, you don't know everything your car can do or what it should do. And I'm yeah. sure there's stuff that could be changed. Yeah. This is an endless argument. And what I, I would like, short of the stance guys, because the stance guys, i got to single you out. You're a car enthusiast because you love your cars, but you made them drive worse. We will all admit that. So short of that, if you're tuning your car for performance, I don't really think there's a right answer. There's things I would do first, but so what? I, I, I'm going to say it. Can't we all get along here? Can't we all just agree we love our cars, we're trying to make them better and our own and deal with it, but it is the ultimate place of, you know what you should have done, and it's not a recommendation. It's a demand. 
which is kind of one of the reasons we don't deal in tuning much. But I'm, I'm loving the discussion on the FRS piece, but at the same time, you kind of have to brace yourself for everyone to tell you exactly what should be, mm-hmm. which is tough. Yeah, I, I like your careful step, and I will add a few thoughts here because you never know the background of somebody. You never know the story of yeah. what they were limited on. I mean, maybe it was a friend who works for that company, and so you know what? You kind of felt like you wanted to be loyal to your buddy who can get sure. you the discount on the parts or you never know the story and you never know what yeah, kind of yeah. budget people are dealing with. And I think that's the biggest thing. But overall, I think ultimately it's everybody's foray into, I want to learn. I want to learn about mm. this. Mm. I've seen that brand. I've seen those parts. I kind of have an opinion at this point. I've heard good and bad, but I kind of want to learn. If I screw up, well, then that's my mistake and I've learned and you know, sure, yeah. then you're gaining expertise in that area. But isn't that the whole reason we're all trying different things? Because we want to learn about what's good, what's bad. And then we've got firsthand experience because there's no mm. way you can mm. set out and, okay, I, I don't want to make a mistake. I want to do this quote unquote right and make every other tuner happy. So when they see my car, they're going <laughs> to give me the nod of approval. You bought the right part and you had the right sure, place to sure. install it and you had the right guy. And you know, everybody's got a guy, you know, that kind of thing. But ultimately, oh, yeah, definitely. we're mm-hmm. all wanting to learn. And I think that's actually part of the fun is the the chase, chasing that, huh, well, that was a learning experience. I didn't do that right. Or I bought the entry-level kit and I should have bought the stage two because that's what I was really looking yeah. for. Okay, well, yeah. Yeah, you yeah. know, and, and that's the rat hole of tuning, the, the hole down <laughs> which is. we all pour money. Although my dad has always said he thinks sailing is like standing in a cold shower ripping up thousand dollar bills but you know <laughs> everybody has their thing so uh it's it's about learning that's that's where yeah. i'm at and and the budget thing is a huge thing and actually speaking directly to one of the things we did it's been funny to watch people comment about the open flash tablet we did for the frs look love it or hate it there was there was an improvement in the car with the open flash tablet what i find funny is there are people that are going oh open flash tablets are terrible you should have done this and i'm sitting here going <laughs> Okay, but if there were actual gains in, in like, numbers and in drivability, how is it terrible? If, if, if there'd been no gains or if the car drove worse, I, I will get on board with your I don't like them. Mm. But isn't it just two different ways to go about the same problem? You like your way, I like my – this is the thing about tuning. There is no real right answer, and yet we all operate as – it's like it's like car politics. I hate to say it that way, but it is. I am more right than you are. Are you? Are you really? <laughs> anyway. And and service comes into play. I mean, the Open Flash tablet guys were very generous and gracious and yeah, helpful and, you know, ready to help, all that kind of stuff. And so when we get good service, that makes you feel like, wow, I'm getting a good product. These people actually care. They know yeah, what they're sure. doing. And there's other companies just like them too. Wonderful. Yeah. But I had absolutely. a good experience here, so that doesn't negate the good experience you had by any means. True. No, absolutely true. And it is that personal experience thing. I mean, I'm going to go one level. Sorry, I didn't think we'd rant on this quite this long, but it is me. Uh, but, you know, it's, <laughs> it's that whole discussion of you, you stand in a room full of people and you debate who's the prettiest girl in the room. You're not going to agree. Well, that's a, that's a good one. I like that because you we know, can all, we you're, all you're relate not. to that, right? We, we may all decide that those five people over there are the most attractive five people in the room. But now – all of you agree on who is the most attractive, not going to Yeah, down. now put them in order or something, yeah. And then yeah. anyway. And then at the end of it, who cares, right? <laughs> who cares? <laughs> uh, went home with a pretty girl. Done. Success. Exactly. Anyway, yeah, okay. Exactly. Well, I've just got one question left as we're trying to keep it limited here to not being the longest podcast ever. Is yeah, uh, true. Eric Markstrom's question – Who's your dream guest for the podcast? Hmm. Well, Eric, you didn't say living or dead, and so I'm going to oh, go out okay. there. All right. Paul Newman would be my dream guest, but of course, I like it. he can't join yeah, us. Not going to happen. Yeah. He's one of my personal heroes for not just his acting and certainly not his race car driving, but for his philanthropy and the fact that to the mm. person, every interview I've ever read or seen or heard loved the guy. He was just such an influential guy and so real and wanted to be known more to be a race car driver than anything else. And I know that just because of watching uh, Adam Carolla's movie, his film about Hmm. Paul Newman. Just the homage to that film and personal hero, 
just through all the stuff in life, everything that he's gone through, and the fact that he was a real guy on top of it, just yeah, he's my dream guest. But um, hmm. cool. yeah, yeah, man, he, he's cool. He's out there, of course. But, you know, couldn't ever have him on, but that's all right. That's all right. It's interesting. I actually hadn't hadn't thought about this question. You've mentioned it now, and it's kind of got my brain running. I'm going to mention three, all of which are, are living, all of which are possibilities. But to be honest, I don't. We don't really have inroads to any of these. Uh, the first one I'm going to mention, we actually are hoping to get on the podcast, and that's Spike Ferriston. Mm, yes, uh, he does yes. the the um, the car matchmaker show on Esquire. We're hoping to get him on the podcast. Uh, we've we've essentially we've lobbed Twitter messages at each other, so we're not really connected <laughs> yet. But yet we both acknowledge that the other one has sent a Twitter message. That's about as far as it's gone. Hopefully that will happen. And then I have to say two others because they're guys that just seem fun. One is Tiff Nadell, oh, and good. the other is Chris Harris. Chris yeah, Harris and yeah. Tiff Nadell would both be very fun on the podcast. Also because putting them on the podcast, I want them to recommend cars to people. These are guys that have driven tons of stuff. Yep. yep. It's not just have them on as a guest. The point of all of these guests is also to have them involved with the car debate. So that's why I have to say those guys. Well, I wanted to end on this question because we've got a surprise guest coming very soon. You all know him, and we're thrilled to mm-hmm. have him, and uh, we're looking forward to sharing that. I'll keep him a surprise for the moment, but you will yep. be hearing next week about him, and uh, we're actually going to have him debate. So he is being very gracious joining us, and uh, we're both looking forward to that. Definitely, so, definitely. man, uh, wrapping up here, what are the thoughts are uh, rattling around in your head before we, we uh, let everybody go well, here? If- of course, the big thing rattling around in my head is uh, April is coming soon. That matters to us because that is when Everyday Driver launches on television. We are coming to Velocity, second quarter of the year, which means guess what I'm doing right now? Lots and <laughs> lots of editing and deliverables. So that's where my brain is at. But, you know, we are excited about we're actually repurposing a lot of stuff for season one plus some new stuff coming as well. Uh, we're looking at this being more than just a one-season reality, but there's a lot of stuff going on right now as we step toward it. If you uh, you or someone you know has wanted to advertise on television or has already advertised on television wants to be partnered with us, we have a couple places left, actually. I mean, we're it, the train is moving. It's happening. But if you want to be one of those, hey, that is a possibility. So you can reach out to us through our website or Everyday Driver TV at Gmail for that, which is also the same way you send in your own car debate. And if you would rate the podcast, we would love that. So thank you for those of you that are doing that as well. Yep, agreed. Thanks so much for your loyalty. We really, really appreciate it. And it's grown the show. It continues to do so. We couldn't do it without you. And we're glad you're enjoying it and glad you're joining us too. So in the meantime, until next time, everyone, cheers.